0: Yeah, just, just, just go on. No, we want to hear from God's Word this morning. And thank you guys for uh, blessing our worship today and adding that to our service this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 to 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the chairs under your seats. And I'd encourage you to, to take one and follow along with us this morning. Second Peter chapter 1, I'd like to read this for us, verses 5 to 11. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful passage this is. It is just so rich, so jam-packed with spiritual truth. I pray that you would help us to digest it this morning. Help us to hear what you want to say to us and encourage us in our faith as we seek to follow Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Do you remember Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's? He died in 2002, but he left behind quite a legacy. Uh, Dave, in his life, described himself as someone who uh, believed in a roll-up-your-sleeves kind of Christianity, and he said he learned that from his grandmother, Minnie Sinclair. Now, I don't know if you know Dave's story, but Dave was born out of wedlock, 1932. And his parents gave him up for adoption at that young age, and he was adopted by a family in Michigan who brought brought him into their home and began to raise him. Sadly, his adoptive mother died when he was five years old. She contracted rheumatic fever and died from that. And so it was really his adoptive grandmother, Minnie Sinclair, who raised him. And he said, she had such a profound influence on my life, uh, and I was very fortunate to be raised by her and have her looking out for me. He said that uh, there were many lessons he learned from his grandmother. Her faith was strong. She prayed a lot, she worshipped God, she loved Jesus, she read the Bible every day. She was also a motivator, and from Grandma Sinclair, I learned seven lessons for living. Don't waste, work hard. Don't cut corners. Have fun doing things. Be strict but caring. Tackle problems head on and pray. He said it was his grandmother, too, who, when he was 12 years old, took him to Gull Lake near Kalamazoo, Michigan, where he was going to be baptized. He had made a commitment to Christ, asking Jesus to forgive his sins and be his Savior. And there in that summer, when he was 12, he was baptized, and he said, I felt like I was forgiven, accepted by God when that happened. But what I remember most about that baptism was that it was my grandmother, Minnie, who took me there. For her, her Christianity was more than just some things you knew in your head. It was more than just doctrine, which is important but it meant working hard in all areas of life. She had a restaurant. She had a place where guests could stay, and it meant taking care of her guests or serving food and preparing meals well. It meant taking care of things around the yard, the garden, the house, those kind of things, and doing that in a way that honored God. At night, she'd listen to the gospel radio out of Chicago, and even on Sunday mornings before church, she was usually listening to a worship service before she got, as she was getting ready to go to her own church. I got baptized into a roll-up-your-shirt-sleeves kind of faith that Grandma Minnie held. He said what that meant, a roll-up-your-shirt-sleeves kind of Christianity means that Christianity is both faith and action. They try to get things done in a real world in a Christian way. Faith and action go hand in hand. Well, if that's the description of a roll-up-your-shirt-sleeves kind of Christianity, I believe that Peter was also like that, that he was the kind of Christian who believed that faith and action go together, and that's what he talks about in this passage that we are going to look at. He tells us that our faith, if it is genuine, must grow. That spiritual growth isn't an option. It's not just for a few, but it's for all of us. And what we see in the Scriptures in many places is that spiritual growth is a cooperative work. There's a part that God must do and only God can do, and there's a part that we must do and only we can do. And we see that in Scripture, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul writes, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Okay? That's our part. He's instructing believers to work at your faith, to be diligent at it, and growing in your relationship with God. Why? Because it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose, That God is present in us. If we accept in Christ as our Savior and and Lord, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. He empowers us. He changes our heart. He convicts us of sin. He urges us, prompts us to grow. But we need to work that out. We see it also in Romans chapter 8 in a couple verses that I picked out here. For example, in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. And you stop there and you think about it, I mean, that's something that only God could do. No condemnation. We are forgiven. Our debt has been paid. There's nothing more that we could do to earn God's favor. But on the other side, then Paul says, Therefore, brothers, sisters, we have an obligation But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. God's forgiven us, and by his grace, he has given us what we need to grow in our relationship with him. Now we have an obligation to do that. And that's exactly what we see in 2 Peter chapter 1. Last week, we talked about how God has given us everything we need to live the Christian life. That's verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He's given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit, the fellowship we have with believers in Christ, the encouragement that comes from going through this life together. I mean, we have all of these tools that are available to us. That's God's part. Now our part, put it into practice. Let it show in the way that you live. And that's what we're going to unpack as we walk through this passage. Peter tells us, first of all, that we all need to have a growing faith, a growing faith. And in verses 5 to 7, he gives us some instruction about that. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Make every effort to add to your faith. Now, those are strong words. I mean, when you think about that, make every effort, not just a little effort. You know, he's not saying, you know, this would be good if you could find some time to get around to this once in a while to work at your faith, you know, or if you just can carve out a little bit of time. I mean, he is saying, no, no, this needs to be a priority. We are to make growing in Christ a priority, just like an athlete would who's in training toward a competition that he is working toward. Make every effort. Be diligent. Be that kind of person who is faithful in your time in the Word and prayer and your devotions and your commitment to worship and to ministry and to service, all of those things make that a priority to become more and more like Christ. I think of an athlete named Dan Gable. Do you remember that name? Dan Gable in his day was a phenomenal wrestler. Uh, He wrestled for Iowa State University. His combined record in high school and college was 181 wins and one loss all the years he wrestled. That's phenomenal. I mean, uh, uh, he went on to win a world championship in 1971 and he won a gold medal in 1972 at the Olympics in Munich. Uh, There's an interesting story, a couple of them about Dan Gable. Uh, One is that, uh, do you remember here in the Sochi Olympics not too long ago where Russia had a goal, their thing that they really wanted to have coming out of that Olympics was to win the gold medal in hockey. I mean, that was like their number one thing that they wanted to do. If they did that, the Olympics would be a success. And for them, they failed in that this year, but that was their goal. In 1972, their goal that they said was to defeat Dan Gable. He was that dominant in wrestling that they wanted to defeat him and do what they could, but again, they failed. And when he won the gold medal in 1972, he won it without giving up a single Point in all of his matches, all the way through the competition. He is intensely competitive. He went on in his coaching at the University of Iowa. His teams won 25 consecutive Big Ten championships. I mean, that's, again, it's just kind of crazy when you think about it in any sport at any level. And he also won 16 NCAA championships. How dedicated was he? Well, prior to going to Munich, the team had a chance to meet with the President of the United States. Dan skipped out on the meeting, found a gym where he could be working out because his eyes were on the goal of winning the gold medal in Munich. I think about that, and I think about those words, make every effort to add to your faith. You know, Dan was committed to what his goal was and when an athlete is committed they're consistent in their training they're faithful in what they need to do they say no to some things to say yes to things that are more important and they work hard at it and so here we are as christians in this world and there's a whole lot of ways that we can you know uh, choose to spend our time but if we're going to be growing in christ we need to make that a priority god comes first We want to be obedient to him in the way that we use our time, our money, our gifts, our talents. We want to honor him in our workplace and in our home and in the way that we live out our faith. That's what Peter is getting at. So he says here, I want you to make every effort to add to your faith these eight qualities. And when Peter gives them to us, he gives us this list that's really, kind of sounds like a ladder, you know, add to this, this, add to this, this, and and it keeps kind of climbing this ladder. It begins with faith, it ends with love, I think there's significance to that. But it was a style of writing, it was called a sore write, when you put things into this kind of ladder formation, and it's important that we understand what he means by that. Peter isn't saying that you work at these one at a time. And when you get this one kind of done, then you move on and you work at the next one or you work at the next one. That would be like saying to a wrestler, okay, you know, for six months we're going to work on your biceps and that's all we're going to do. And then six months we're going to work on your quads, you know, or six months we're going to work on your calves. That would be kind of silly. I mean, a wrestler wants to be in shape all around. He wants to exercise all of his muscles at the same time. And I mean, that's what Peter is saying here with these eight qualities. He isn't saying work on them one at a time, but he's saying all of these are part of what it means to be a fruitful Christian. So work at them. Add them to your faith and keep progressing in them. So let's take a look at that list. It starts with faith. Faith is the foundational Christian virtue. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. Faith is believing God. It's taking him at his word and trusting that what he says is true, and I wanna follow it. He says, add to your faith goodness. That word means moral excellence. It has to do with things like honesty, integrity, character, being a person who does what is right in the sight of God. It's interesting that in the Greek world, excellence meant uh, that when something was excellent, it was fulfilling its purpose. It was fulfilling the reason for which it was created. For example, the excellence of a horse is to run. And when you see a horse running with grace and beauty and speed, that is excellent. If you're working in the kitchen, the excellence of a knife is to cut. I mean, it's like, you know, having that knife that holds its edge and that is useful when you are there working in the kitchen. That's, that's excellent. And the excellence of a Christian is to be like Christ. It's to become more and more like Jesus in the way that we think, the way that we respond to people, the way that we live in this world. We're to add to goodness, then, knowledge, a practical wisdom, the ability to take the word and apply it to life, knowing right from wrong, understanding and discerning God's will for our life. We're to be growing in that. We're to practice self-control. That has to do with controlling our passions. It's the opposite of self-indulgence. And even in that day, you know, when Peter looked at the false teachers, I mean, there were false teachers who were coming along who were in this because of greed or a desire for power or for sexual desires that they wanted to fulfill, and they were ungodly men. And Peter is saying that we are to practice self-control, and that has to do with controlling our speech, our appetites, our sexual desires. And all of that comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are to persevere. That's the ability to hold up under trial, whether those trials be sickness or persecution or loss or rejection by friends even. We are to persevere, to endure, to walk with God in this life, holding on to Him. We're to be growing in godliness, in our reverence, our respect for God, our worship. We are to become a person who pleases God in all areas of our life fearing God more than men and we are to show brotherly kindness it's the word Philadelphia we are to show our love for one another in the body of Christ he's talking about here with brothers and sisters in Christ in particular we are to be compassionate and bear one another's burdens encouraging one another as we go through life together and then finally we are to show love Agape, unconditional love toward all. It is a spirit-given love by which we treat all people with kindness and benevolence. It is the crown of the Christian virtues. If you think of 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter on love where it talks about, now these three abide, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is what? It's love. The greatest of these is love. It is by our love for one another that the world will know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. That's where Peter gets these things. And so he's saying to us that as Christians, we need to be growing in our faith and adding these things to our life. And how do we work at them? Well, it starts with surrendering to God. We are to abide in Christ. We're to be a people that are in the Word and prayer. We're to be in fellowship with one another, obedient, serving God, using our gifts. We're to share our faith with others. We are to go and make disciples. We are to roll up our sleeves and work at our faith. And if we do that, the result will be a fruitful life. That's what he tells us in verses 8 and 9. He says, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So here's this exhortation to do these things, and if you possess these qualities in an increasing measure, that's the goal, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. And those two words they are ineffective means idle or not involved. It's used in the Scripture in another place when it says if a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. I mean, if somebody has the ability to work and they just willfully aren't going to do it, well, you don't have an obligation to provide for them. They need to get to work. If a person is unable to work or in need of assistance, that's a different thing. We come alongside to help. But peter is saying that if you aren't working at your faith you know and you're just being idle you're just sitting on the sidelines you're just trying to avoid serving or using your gifts and you just want to be totally uninvolved and kind of go through this life that is not what god wants god wants us to be putting our skills to work serving him and serving one another and the other side If you possess these qualities, it will keep you from being unproductive. It will keep you from being fruitless. You will bear much fruit. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 15. In John 15, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we are... Walking with Christ, it's going to happen. His life's going to flow through us, and it will touch the lives of others. And a little farther down in John 15, he said in verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. God is glorified when we allow him to work through us and we are serving him. And what it does is that it also is a demonstration of the world that we are a follower of Jesus Christ. So what kind of fruit is he talking about? Jesus didn't define it there, but it is talked about throughout Scripture, and I believe these are some evidences of that. It is the fruit of a changed life, that those who know Christ should walk as Jesus walked. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, his love and joy and peace and patience in our life. It's the fruit of evangelism. It's being a witness for Christ and letting your life shine. It's the fruit of discipleship, working with others to help them grow in their faith and become mature. It's the fruit of love our love for one another. It's the fruit of good deeds. James said that this is pure and undefiled religion to care for widows and orphans in their distress. And so when you are a person who's looking at needs of the people around you or in your community and you step in to help, that is bearing fruit. It's the fruit of generous giving, knowing that God has blessed you, not just to spend all of your resources on yourself, but to share and to be a blessing to others. And when we give generously, we reap generously. And when we give and help others, we realize how much God gives back, even as a church. You know, I get excited when I think about our the giving we're able to do whether it's the missions or benevolences or ministries a couple weeks ago uh, we made some contributions to both the food shelf and to give assistance to people uh, in need that we were aware of in our church and it was interesting to me that we had given out a significant amount of money and when i looked at what came in that sunday for our benevolence fund What you gave was more than what we gave out. And I'm going, okay, Lord, there must be somebody else that you want us to help or assist at this time. When you give, God blesses, and he gives back, and it's just so cool to see that happen. It is also the fruit of prayer. When we... Join with others in praying for them. Paul invited the believers in Colossae to pray for him that God would open doors for ministry, and when they prayed, they shared in that work. Do you know that not to bear fruit, he says, is to be short-sighted and blind? Now, some people have struggled with how can you be both nearsighted and blind? What's he talking about there? Well, it's really explained in the words that are used to be nearsighted is to be short-sighted. You can only see things that are close up. And he's saying if you are not working at your faith, and you're not growing at your faith, you're not using what God has given to you, it's because you're being short-sighted. You aren't thinking about eternity. You're just thinking about this life. And when he says that you are blind, the word there is actually, it means willfully blind. It's to shut your eyes. It's to say, I'm just going to shut my eyes and I don't want to see the needs of the people around me. I don't want to see what's going on in the world. I'm just going to live my own life and do my own thing. That's what it means to be nearsighted and blind. And God is saying, open your eyes to the needs of the world. There's a harvest that is ripe all around us if we will just get involved and follow Him. I understand, too, that sometimes fruitfulness can be hard to measure in this life. Gail and I were talking about that. How do we know if we're bearing fruit, you know? And and there are some things you can see where maybe you've encouraged somebody else or helped them in their growth or maybe you had the opportunity to minister and they thanked you for that. And so you get some sense in this life of how God may be using you, but it's not going to be until eternity that we see all of it. There's a story about an American missionary, Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma, that's the country of Myanmar it's called today, he went to Burma in 1812 and he died there 38 years later in 1850. And during that time he suffered much for the sake of Christ. There were times in his life when he was imprisoned, he was tortured, he was kept in shackles because of people who didn't like what he was doing or the message he was sharing. His first wife died there, and that was just devastating for him. And for the next three years, he struggled on and off with depression. He would write about his life. He'd say uh, that in his journal that God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. He was wrestling with his grief. There were times when he would just simply sit by the grave of his wife, and he wept because of the loss that he felt. And you can imagine in those days, in the early 1800s, when you went out as a missionary, you left your family, you left your church, your support, and you went. And you weren't sure that you were ever coming back, but you went for the sake of Christ. And so what Judson did is he persevered in the work that he believed God was calling him to. And that work was to translate the scriptures into the language of the people in Burma. He completed the New Testament. That was printed, and then he completed the Old Testament by early 1834. Now, we don't know exactly how many believers there were at the time when Judson died in 1850, but by some estimates, it was maybe only 20 to 25 believers at that time. And very few churches. With that smaller group, how can you have a lot of churches? You maybe have one church that is functioning or starting to function. So here he is, he gave 38 years of his life, a translation is completed, but only a handful of believers. Well 150 years later, there was an anniversary celebration of the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language and Paul Borthwick was asked to speak at that anniversary celebration. And just before he got up to speak, he noticed in small print on the first page the words translated by Reverend Adoniram Judson. And so Barthwick turned to his interpreter and he said, what do you know about Adoniram Judson? What do you know about him? And the man smiled and he looked at him and he said, oh, I can tell you about Reverend Judson. We know how he loved the Burmese people. We know how much he suffered for the gospel because of us and out of love for us. We know that he died as a pauper, but he left a Bible for us. And when he died, there were only a few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us, and every single one of us can trace our spiritual heritage to one man, to Reverend Judson. That's quite a legacy, isn't it? And he never saw it. Never saw it in his lifetime. Never saw the fruit of what God was going to do through him. You know, I think about stories like that when I think about Carrie, who's gone out from our church to do the work of Bible translation for a people group that have never had the word of God in their own language before. Handful of believers, just starting. Churches, just just starting. And we've joined with her in prayer, 150 years from now, what's going to be said of her work and the team that she's a part of. And I believe that there will be that kind of great joy and celebration once again because of people like her who have gone to bring the Word of God to those who have never heard it. That's what that celebration is going to be like when we stand around God's throne and we worship Him. So realize that our... Fruitfulness may not be evident in this life. We may only see a part of it. The rest is yet to come. But Peter goes on to say that if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, not only will you have a fruitful life, but you will receive a rich welcome into heaven. A rich welcome into heaven. It's pretty incredible what he writes here. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. You know, those are uh, interesting verses that are put back to back in Scripture. And sometimes they, you know, theologians wrestle with them. And how can both of these things be true? The Scripture affirms God's election, His calling, His choice of those who would become part of His family. And it teaches that as absolutely true. And yet on the other side, it emphasizes God's, I mean, man's responsibility that we need to work at these things to make our calling and election sure and to keep from falling. And how do we do that? And how both things are true, that God is sovereign in our salvation and he is at work in us. And yet there's also this responsibility that we have to work at our faith and to be growing, to prove that we are genuine believers in Christ. And what Peter says here is very clear that if you are growing in your faith and if you are bearing fruit, it is an evidence of God's work in your life. And we experience the assurance of our salvation. We know that he is at work in us because we sense his Holy Spirit within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We see him and we experience joy of being involved in his work. And for me, that's one of the greatest things of being in ministry with you, is to see how he's working in your life and to see what you're doing and to think of how we as a church, just just one church can join in what God is doing around the world, literally, as well as here at home. And to share these stories of how God is at work and to see him and to give him thanks It's just Such a huge blessing, and it motivates me to continue to serve him. But Peter says even more than experiencing just the assurance of our salvation, that one day you and I will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A rich welcome. You know what that means? That means a lavish welcome, a generous welcome into the eternal kingdom. You know, I can only imagine what that's gonna be like. I can't put that all together. But I mean, that's a pretty incredible thought to think that one day we're gonna experience a lavish welcome in heaven. I mean, most of us are thinking like, who am I? I mean, what have I done? I mean, how is that going to happen? And yet God is saying that one day he is going to welcome us in that way. And the words that Peter uses is like, it's like the welcome an Olympic athlete would receive when he returned home after winning a medal. And I think about that. I go back to, remember 1987 when the Minnesota Twins won the World Series for the first time there? And they came back and It was really a city that was starved for a champion, you know. We really wanted somebody to win. Please let them win, you know. We were cheering them on. And, you know, for most of the players on that team, the memory that stands out to them, though, was when they won the first round in Detroit and they came back, there was this spontaneous gathering at the Metrodome. And 50,000 people showed up to welcome them back after just winning the first round of the playoffs and to cheer them on. That's how hungry people were. That's how excited they were to see if this team could win. And those players, they, they couldn't believe it. I mean, they got to the blame. they come back to the stadium, and here's all these people that are there cheering them on, and then later, after they did win the World Series, you know, there's, there's a parade, and there's confetti, and there's people lying in the streets and taking time off of work. There is a lavish welcome to celebrate the victory that they had won. One day, Jesus is going to welcome you home. And if you have followed him and served him well, you will receive a lavish welcome into the kingdom of our beloved Savior. That's a pretty amazing thought. There's a story about a missionary couple, Henry Morrison and his wife, who had worked in Africa for 40 years. They had poured out their heart among the people group that they were working with, and they were coming home, their health wasn't good, they had no pension to retire on, and they were coming back to the States. It was early in the 1900s, and they happened to be on the same ship that President Teddy Roosevelt was on. And Roosevelt had just been in Africa, he was on one of his big game hunting expeditions, and so all the attention's on Teddy Roosevelt. And when they get into New York, into the harbor, you know, and they're getting off the boat, I mean, there's parades, there's bands, there's all this celebration to welcome the president. And Henry Morrison, who was struggling with some depression, some grief at that time, you know, just said to his wife, It's not fair. It just doesn't seem fair. I mean, here we are, we've poured out our heart for 40 years, and we're coming back, and we don't know what's going to happen next. And here's the president you know and he's been on a hunting trip and he's receiving this rich welcome and he was struggling with some bitterness and they got a flat on the east side of new york and his wife encouraged him to just go into the bedroom spend some time with god in prayer and he went in and he poured out his complaint to the lord and shared what he was feeling and after a time of prayer, he came out and his face was really changed. And he, he looked different. and his wife said, you know, honey, what happened? What did God say to you? And he said, when I poured out my complaint to the Lord and when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord had put his hand on my shoulder and he said to me, Henry, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. And I think of how true that is. That in this life, we shouldn't expect that there'll be that kind of recognition for the things we've done for the Lord. But one day in heaven, there will. So do you want to be welcomed into the eternal kingdom with great joy? Then work at your faith. And do you want to bear fruit for God? Then abide in Christ and get involved in ministering to others. And do you want to have the assurance of your salvation? then keep growing in Christ, and one day he will welcome you home. Let's pray. Father, when I think of those stories of men and women who have served so long and so well, and the world did not recognize it, I think of that passage in Hebrews that they were men of whom the world was not worthy. They were faithful. They followed you. They gave their life for you. And God, that does not go unnoticed in your sight, for our labor is never in vain in the Lord. Thank you for the encouragement that comes from that, and thank you for the promises of your word that one day we will stand in your presence and we will see the fruit of lives that were lived for your glory and honor. Lord, help us to do that today. Help us to live our life in a way that pleases you and to be growing in the qualities that we've talked about today. And we will give you all the praise and glory. Amen.